tuning in to our Neighborhood Church podcast. Join us on Sunday at any of our locations. To learn more about our church, visit neighborhoodchurch.com or download our church app. Well, good morning, Neighborhood Church. Welcome to the second gathering of this uh, beautiful Sunday, May 15th. So what is it? Lasagna or enchiladas? What a, what a Hobson's choice that is, man. I feel like I'm between Scylla and Charybdis. I don't come up with these questions, by the way. I think my answer is tacos. So anyway, uh, glad you're with us this morning. And uh, my name, for those of you that don't recognize me, is uh, Steve Ellis. I'm one of the elders serving here at Neighborhood Church. And on occasion, they let me put on my preacher's hat. And this is one of those occasions. So um, for those of you who have been paying attention, you know we are in a new series in the Psalms called Experiencing God Through the Psalms with the aim of expanding our view of God and enlarging our understanding of his goodness and his faithfulness to us, whatever circumstances or stage of life we might be in. I think, for one, it would be healthy if we all had a bigger view of God. J.B. Phillips, who, uh, by the way, was the author of the Phillips translation of the New Testament, penned a book that was first published over about 50 years ago entitled, Your God is Too Small. Many of you have probably read it. Uh, It challenges are sometimes childish, sometimes inadequate, sometimes transactional, limited view of God and encourages us to explore deeper and discover him for the truly amazing, incredible, immeasurably bigger God than even our wildest imaginations can envision. Because honestly, the more we discover about science and creation and the heavens and the earth, the more that we realize we have not even scratched the surface in understanding the incredibly powerful and complex being behind this thing we call life. The idea that your God is too small, I I think is a problem that holds us back sometimes. I mean, it was for the disciples. We just went through the uh, Bible book of Mark. And you remember that story back in chapter four where uh, the disciples are shaking Jesus in the back of the boat? You know, wake up, wake up. He's asleep. And uh, he opens his eyes and they're like, we're all gonna die, we're all gonna die. I, I don't know how long it took him to uh, you know, rub the sleep out of his eyes and kind of look around and stand up. He probably grabbed the rigging to steady himself on that rising and falling boat. And then he looked out over the waves and the wind and he said, peace be still, peace be still. That was not a request, by the way. And it was not a victim's plea. It was a command. And nature obeyed its creator. Amen? And the disciples are like, what manner of man is this? And Jesus looked around and said, O ye of little faith. And then he said, I'm going back to bed. At least I think that's what he said. Because, you know, a lot of times in the Gospels, we see Jesus just, he's just kind of shaking his head, you know, or just kind of chuckling under his breath. When, when are you guys going to get it? Because they didn't get it. I mean, they walked with him. 
They ate with him. They listened to his teachings and they didn't get it. Not completely anyway. Not until he he died and rose from the grave and they had that seven mile Bible study on the walk to Emmaus that the lights really started completely to come on because their view of God was too small. Oh, Messiah, he's going to deliver us from the Roman occupation. Oh, no, 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 no. It's much, much bigger than that. He's going to deliver us from the greatest oppression of all evil, sin and death. And he's going to wash it away forever as far as the east is from the west. Restore you to a relationship with your creator in which you can truly begin to thrive. I think we could all use a bigger view of God. I really do. I retired from my law practice the end of October last year, and um, I turned 65 in February, so I'm part of the Medicare crowd now. I go, woohoo, I guess. I don't know. And as I step into this new phase of my life, I am discovering that I am having the benefit of some fresh perspective. Now that I have more time to reflect, because, you know, when you're in the middle of it, let's be honest, you're just trying to survive. And it's all you can do sometimes to just keep your head above water, chasing kids around, trying to keep your marriage healthy, trying to pay the bills. I mean, you don't have a whole lot of time to ponder the meaning of life. I mean, there are moments, right? But then it's like, oh, I got to get going again. Got to get back on that treadmill. But uh, now that my life is a little less rushed, I find that I am enjoying more moments of reflection, looking back not with regret or melancholy, but with perspective. Because in my humble observation, once you have a few years under your belt and you've suffered and been through a crisis or two or three, and God has walked you through those valley of the shadow of death experiences, figuratively speaking, that's when you truly begin to appreciate how awesome how big, how completely sufficient our God really is. You know, when I was young, I would hear preachers say things like, you know, God is good. His love is everlasting. And I'd think to myself, yeah, that that sounds right. You know, I'd want to believe it. But I didn't know it the way that I do now. Because like many of you, the more life experience you have, the more your life bears witness to the things we're going to look at in the Psalms about God's steadfast love this morning. We're in Psalms 107, which is uh, the first Psalm in book five, which is the book of the Psalms we're going through in this series. And most of the verses should be on the screen, but not all of them. So you'll want to follow along in your Bible if you've got it or your iPad or your phone or whatever you do to to follow the scriptures. Uh, Pastor Mike actually uh, preached at the LaSalle campus this morning, and he put the study guide together. So if your life group uses the study guide as part of that study or you, you use it in your personal study, which we encourage, you'll get a little bonus perspective this week. So... Uh, Psalms 107, but before we go to the word, uh, will you pray with me? Father God, we, uh, we just ask as we humble our hearts before you this morning that, that we want to hear from you. Lord, illuminate our minds, sharpen our focus, enlarge our hearts. Your spirit resides within us and teaches us from the word of truth. 
Lord, send us forth this morning knowing that we heard from the living God because you are here in our midst. Do that for your glory and our blessing. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, Psalms 107 is a call, a summons to thankfulness for the steadfast love of the Lord. And that's what we see right off the bat here in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Right here we have a command, a summons, give thanks to the Lord, an observation, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. And then in verse two, an exhortation, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. We're going to see this summons repeated five times in this psalm. It's here in verse one, again in verse eight, a repeat in verse 15, let them give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love. It's reloaded in verse 21, let them give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love. And finally, again, in verse 31, let them give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love. This is a call to thankfulness. And from whom is this thanks to come? Verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Any redeemed of the Lord here this morning? Okay, well, there you go. Then let's say so. Say it with me. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen? The phrase steadfast love here is the ESV translation of the Hebrew word chesed, or in plain English, chesed. It appears uh, around 250 times in the Old Testament, and um, about half of those are in the Psalms, and six times here in Psalm 107. It is a word that is rich with meaning. You know, one of the things about the Hebrew language, which the Lord chose to communicate with his people, at least initially, is that the words typically have multiple layers of meaning. And so our English words like uh, mercy, compassion, love, grace, faithfulness, they all relate to this word chesed, but none of them alone capture the whole concept. Hased is not just an emotion or a feeling, but it connotes action on behalf of someone that is in need. The core idea contemplates complete loyalty or faithfulness within a relationship, the idea of belonging together. Hased is God's covenant love for us, absolutely unbreakable. One group of commentators uh, put forward what they called a working definition of Hased the consistent, ever-faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, furious love of our God. Back in 2017, singer-songwriter Corey Asbury uh, penned and released a, a song called Reckless Love. Some of you may have heard it. It was pretty popular for a while. And the chorus goes, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. 
I couldn't earn it, I don't deserve it, still you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love. I would have said relentless, but I guess reckless fits better within the pentameter of the, 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 the rhythm there. That's why I'm not a songwriter. But the, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, relentless, reckless love of God. That's the, that's the idea of hesed. It's a rescuing love. Later in that song, you'll hear, oh, there's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down coming after me. I love songs because they have a way of encapsulating and distilling down the truth. Hymns are so great that way. You know, they're like little mini sermons put to music. And that's the Psalms. Psalm 107 is a hymn to be sung together by his people in celebration of his everlasting chesed. You know, the Bible book of Hosea is basically a story of a marriage between a prophet and a prostitute. It's a word picture of God's unbreakable chesed for his continually unfaithful people. And in Hosea 2.19, God declares, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love. There's that word again, chesed, and in mercy. If you've put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness and salvation, God has betrothed you. You belong to him. And there's no getting a divorce, no matter what you do, sorry. God's said follows us no matter where we are. And that's expressed here in Psalm 107 in four separate little vignettes. In verses four to nine, we have a picture of people lost and wandering in the desert, being guided to safety by a straight way in verse seven. In verses 10 to 16, we're gonna see a picture of prisoners bound in darkness, having their chains broken and being set free in verse 14. In verses 17 to 22, there's a picture of sick men, afflicted, being restored to health in verse 20. And in verses 23 to 32, a picture of sailors in a terrible storm, being delivered and reaching their desired haven. That's a harbor or a port of refuge in verses 29 to 30. And each of these little vignettes follow the same pattern. There is the predicament, the dilemma. Then there is the petition, the cry for help to the Lord. Then there is the pardon or deliverance or rescue because of God's steadfast love. And then the call to praise, to give thanks to the Lord, as we already mentioned in verses 8, 15, 21, and 31. So we're going to take a quick look at these four. We can't really dig too deep in the time that we have, but at least we can skip off the surface and, and hopefully create a bit of a launch pad for additional study. Number one, God's steadfast love guides us when we feel lost. This is verses four through nine. You know, a lot of aimlessness these days. People jumping from job to job, church to church, relationship to relationship, marriage to marriage looking for something, but never finding true satisfaction. Verse four says, they wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. 
they're lost. And while this undoubtedly could be a, a, an allusion to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness after the Egyptian exile, it most certainly relates to our experience in life at times. We sometimes feel lost. We sometimes feel aimless. We don't know what to do or where to go or how to make our way forward. We feel stuck. Or it might be an emotional desert we're going through. I've had my share of those. And that's why it's so important for us to have a bigger view of God. Because when I think back on those times in my life, when I felt disconnected or alone or seemed to have lost my way, it was so important for me to know that God was still there. Even though I didn't feel it, even though it, I didn't seem to be able to sense his presence in that moment, it was so important for me to know he sees the end from the beginning, that my destination was sure, even though I couldn't see it on the horizon. No matter what you might be feeling, God is still there, and he has his eye on you all the time. Psalm 33, 18 is a beautiful reminder of this. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, his chesed. My wife was a dental hygienist for about 30 years, and the dentist she worked for, uh, for almost her entire career, had a, uh, like a 28-foot Bayliner cabin cruiser he kept down in the Long Beach Marina. And once a year he or so, he would take the entire office and families for a weekend cruise to the Isthmus on Catalina, you know, 26 miles across the sea. And uh, yeah, we'd, we'd stay in these rustic cabins uh, at a campground facility called the Fourth of July Cove. And it was always a fun adventure. And the kids just loved it because we'd often see pilot whales on the channel crossing or dolphins frolicking off the bow of the boat or Doc would throw lines in the water. And once we brought in about a five-foot shark and uh, it was just so fun. And this one particular time, we're pulling into the isthmus and so Doc has throttled back the engines and we're kind of drifting toward one of the moorings. And I'm up on the bow of the boat with our two oldest children who my son was about seven at the time. Our oldest daughter, who's a doctor herself now, was uh, about three or four. And uh, they're looking over the side. There's this little railing all around the front of the bow of the boat and they're trying to find the bottom and, ooh, dad, look at all the fish, look at everything. And my better half is in the back of the boat. And um, I can hear Miss Worst Case Scenario back there, who, who, by the way, I am happily married to going on 44 years now. But she's like, Steve, Steve, they shouldn't be up there. Steve, that's dangerous. Steve, make them sit down. I don't know what she's thinking. We're going to hit an iceberg or something. I wasn't sure. But, but fortunately, I saw the swell a second or two before it hit. Because as that wave rocked the boat, and we just rolled. My seven-year-old did fine. He stumbled a bit, but he was able to catch himself. But my four-year-old daughter, she went right down on her side and started to roll right underneath that guardrail off the side of the boat. And I lunged. And fortunately, my fingers caught one of the straps of those Oshkosh overall things that she was wearing. And I pulled her up and set her on the deck. And I kid you not, her eyes were this big. I mean, she has big blue eyes to begin with, but I mean, these were saucers looking at me and she was like, 
Daddy, you saved me. And I was like, ah, yeah, you know. She's four years old. She wants to engage in a little hero worship. I'm not going to disabuse her. But what she didn't understand was that I had my eye on her the entire time. I was right behind her the whole time. She was never out of reach. I mean, I'm glad my fingers caught that strap because if she went in, I was going off the side, you know, shirt, shoes and all after her. So that's a good thing. But God has his eye on you all the time, no matter where you are. You know, when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, God was guiding them, a cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. We have a God who guides us. He goes before us. He has risen from the dead and he knows the way. You know, there's a beautiful verse in Joshua chapter three where the Israelites are just about to cross over into the promised land and the Lord parts the Jordan River you know, he replicates that miracle to affirm Joshua in the eyes of the people. And it says, stay close to the Lord, for you have not passed this way before. And you know, that is true of us. No matter what stage of life you're in, whether you're graduating from high school or college, you're about to get married, you're about to have kids, you're changing careers, you've lost a spouse, or you're recently retired like me. Whatever stage of life we're in, we have not passed this way before. We need to stay close to the one whose eye is upon us. A lot of times we may feel lost or stalled in life, but the Lord wants us to move forward. He has new territories, new adventures for us, new things for us to do. The Lord leads us in stages through life, and every stage that we have gone through previously has prepared us for the one ahead. So whatever lies ahead of you, the living God, the one who wrote the book, resides in you and walks with you through whatever desert you may be facing. And these assurances give us the confidence that he will guide us to our destination all the way through life and onto heaven. Number two, God's steadfast love frees us when we feel trapped. In verse 10, we have this image of being chained up in the darkness, jailed. And sometimes we are stuck because of sin, rebellion against God's design for our lives. That's the image here in verse 11. They rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. I think of the prodigal. He spurned the counsel of his father, right? And where did he end up? Trapped in harsh circumstances. But he went back to his father for help. Sin is the ultimate oppression, the ultimate bondage from which God's chesed sets us free. But there are a lot of other ways we can feel trapped in life. Sometimes we just feel trapped by circumstances. We might feel trapped in a job or trapped in a relationship or walled in by our situation. Life can be suffocating at times, it can. You know, I love being a dad and now a papa, but I gotta tell you, honestly, when our kids, all four of them finally graduated and got out of college and off to marriage, I turned to my wife and I said, honey, I feel like I've been paroled. Because as fun as that was, as wonderful as that experience is, you know, there are times 
when the responsibility and the busyness and the weight of it all can feel overwhelming, almost like prison. I can remember more than once driving to work about 6.30 in the morning or so, going south on the 405 freeway, watching the sun come up over Saddleback and thinking to myself, what if I just kept driving? By the time I reach Oklahoma. Does that make me a bad person that I had thoughts like that? Am I the only one whose heart goes to dark places sometimes? Sometimes we just feel trapped in life. And we need to remember the chesed of the Lord. This is for a season and for a reason. And knowing that, just, just having that assurance is liberating. It really is. Jesus said, you will know the truth. And the truth what? Set you free. You know that story of Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16? They get thrown in jail for preaching Christ and it says they were taken into the inner dungeon, down in the bowels of that jail. And what were they doing? Singing, giving thanks, singing hymns of praise to God. For all we know, they were singing Psalm 107. It certainly would have been apropos for that situation. Why were they singing? Because they knew the truth. They were already free. Sin and death conquered at the cross. Amazing grace. My chains are gone. I've been set free. Oh, Lord, my God has ransomed me. Amazing grace. Unending love. Number three, God's steadfast love restores us when we experience loss. This is the vignette in verses 17 to 22. And the image presented is, is one of affliction, of sickness. They're so sick they don't even want to eat, it says in verse 18, which is a sign of terminal illness. Verse 17 says, because of their rebellious ways, because of their iniquities, they were afflicted. And we can certainly suffer setbacks because of our own poor choices because of our own bad decisions. When we choose to stray away from the blueprint that has been given us by the manufacturer, we can get way off the rails. My oldest son is fond of saying, Dad, you know, everybody is just one or two bad decisions from disaster. And when you think about it, that's really true. I mean, just, just look around. And what is the solution? It's the same for all four of these little vignettes. Verse 19, they cried out to the Lord in their distress, and he rescued them. He restored them to health, verse 20. You know, we can end up physically sick with no appetite for food. We can end up emotionally sick, depressed with no appetite for life. We might be financially sick and so afraid we withdraw and, and lose our appetite for just engaging in normal life. Here it's the picture of affliction, a sense, a sense of loss, uh, of going backwards, of not being able to do what you used to do, not having what you used to have. And the answer is to cry out to the Lord. Stay close to him. It always is. Submit your life unto the Lord. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. By the way, you know, now that I'm retired, it seems like all I see on TV these days is commercials for drugs for old people. You know, like pain relief or this condition or that condition. They make it seem like it's all about managing the decline, right? You know, you're afflicted. Just uh, make yourself as comfortable as you can while you're waiting to die. No, thank you. No, thank you. I mean, I sincerely believe, I sincerely believe God leaves us on this earth because we have something to do for him. And not until we're finished does he take us to heaven. So if you're still here, it's because God has something for you today. And it may be as simple as being a testimony, a witness to the uh, encouragement to younger generations of the, of the steadfast love, the chesed of God that you've experienced at every stage of your life. You know, as, as elders, we regularly visit the afflicted of this community. And you can ask any of the guys. More often than not, when we come back from those visits, we're the ones that feel encouraged. We're the ones that feel uplifted because of the witness of God's chesed. Even in their affliction, confident of the steadfast love of God. It's so beautiful. Don't let anybody ever tell you your best days are behind you. It's not true. Our best days are ahead of us. Just look at that picture in Revelation 22, where the river of the waters of life are flowing out from under the throne of God. No more sickness, no more loss. You don't even need to turn on the lights, it says in verse five, because the glory of the Lord illuminates everything and they shall see his face, verse four, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Our God is a God who restores a God who gives life, and our best days are always still ahead. Fourth, and lastly, God's steadfast love navigates us through life's storms. Anyone who has lived a little while knows that um, life is coming at you every single day. It is relentless. If you're here, you're going through stuff. But God wants you to go through it with him, not alone, with him, his way. In verses 23 to 32, we have a picture of sailors on the sea in a storm. And it's a hairy one. Verse 26 says, they rose to the heavens and went down to the depths. This boat is going, whoa, whoo. They've never seen waves like this. And it says their courage melted away. Verse 26. And if you know sailors, they're pretty hardy men. So this is saying something. You know, I've never done the, uh, the deadliest catch thing. You know, I've never been uh, on the sea in an ocean storm, something quite as frightening as that. But uh, on one of our last weekend trips to Catalina uh, with Doc, we usually would go out on a Friday and then come back on a Sunday afternoon. And this particular time, the Coast Guard had issued a small craft advisory 
for Sunday afternoon because they were expecting the winds to pick up. And they always say, you know, small craft advisory from Point Conception to the Mexican border. Uh, and Doc would, he would pay attention to the weather reports. So he knew that. So Sunday morning, he's hustling us all, you know, trying to gather us, get your gear, get on the boat. Come on, we got to get going. We got to get going. He's thinking we'll get out early and we'll be fine. And we were for about the first half of the channel crossing. And then about 11 o'clock, the winds came up. And if you know anything about the ocean, you know it's not the current, it's not the tide that whips up the waves. It's the wind. Those storms on the Sea of Galilee, that place is like a wind tunnel. It comes down off the Golan Heights and it can turn that placid little lake into a beast in a matter of minutes. And we started to feel it. And at first it was kind of fun, you know, and then it uh, it got a little disconcerting because that wind whipped those waves higher and faster and uh, Doc started to do what sailors call tacking, where he would kind of attack the wave at an angle and go up the face. And then as it passed underneath the boat, we'd kind of surf down the other side. Because that boat was a bit overloaded, you know, with all of us in our luggage. And if he had just chugged that thing straight, those waves coming sideways would have come right over the top of the boat. I don't know how big the swells were, but I was standing on the deck And when the swells came, you could not see over the top of the wave. It was above your head. And there were several times, a few times, despite his best efforts, a wave hit us hard and sprays going everywhere and water's pouring over the gunwales and all the ladies in the back of the boat are going, ah, ah, and they're grabbing buckets and slurpy cups and anything they can find. And they're just furiously bailing away. And uh, I'm up on the bow of the boat with our two oldest children again, now about 10 and seven. And they've got life jackets on and they're sitting down, okay? I may be a slow learner, but I get it eventually. And, uh, and I look, and I, you know, I could see the concern on Doc's face as he was at the wheel, you know, just this gritty determination, surveying the, the, the scene and planning his next maneuver. Because, you know, he's, he's usually a really gabby guy. You know, he's a jokester, but not now. And I looked in the back of the boat and my wife is back there bailing away and I'm thinking, Oh, baby, I hope you can swim. Because, you know, if we go under, I'm staying with these two as long as I can. And uh, I'm telling you, it's normally about a three-hour crossing. I think I've heard that somewhere before. A three-hour cruise. I'm sorry, little buddy. I just went to Gilligan's Island for a second. But, you know, I'm not sure how long it took, but it seemed like forever. Because, you know, I'm looking at the coastline, trying to make out the downtown skyline, and you're too far away. You can't see it. And I'm thinking, man, this is forever. And uh, I don't think I've ever prayed that hard, that long about anything in my life. Silently, you know, because I don't want the kids to freak out any more than they already are, right? But I'm telling you, people, that was some fervent praying, Have you ever been in one of life's storms where you felt that way? When things just seem completely out of control and you're just at the mercy of the waves and you're like, help, Mr. Wizard. It can be an unsettling thing. It can be a cause of some anxiety. And yet the Lord tells us, be anxious for nothing.
You know, it's interesting here in verse 27, we see that uh, when did they cry out to the Lord? When they were at their wits end. After they've done everything within their own power they can think of, humanly speaking, thrown all the cargo overboard. And they're like, what do we do now? Cry out to the Lord? Maybe we ought to think about doing that a little earlier. Hmm? Because the steadfast love of the Lord is a rescuing love. Verse 29, he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed and they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Now, I don't remember exactly how long it took, but eventually we rode those waves in that rising and falling boat all the way into the harbor. And I'll never forget when we finally passed those red and green little breakwater lighthouses, I was standing in the cockpit at that point and Doc leaned over and whispered to me with a little smile on his face, Steve, I've never been so glad to see the breakwater in all my life. And that's when I knew it was as hairy as I thought it was. He was not given to exaggeration. God's said is a rescuing love. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Verse 43 closes the psalm with the question, who is wise? Who is wise? Let him give heed to these things and consider the loving kindness, the hesed of the Lord. Uh, One last interesting observation. Look at verses 33 to 43 at the end of this psalm, and in particular, verses 33 to 35. We get those on the screen? No? Well, they say basically that he turns a, 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 a river or an oasis into a desert. And in verse 35, it says he turns a desert into springs of life. It's the opposite illusion. And the point is, no matter your present situation, God can change your circumstances like that. I think of examples in the scripture, you know, guys like Joseph languishing away in an Egyptian prison. And the next thing he knows, he's the second most powerful man in the greatest empire on earth. Or on the other end of the spectrum, Nebuchadnezzar. You know, he's uh, strolling around on the roof of his palace one evening, just taking it all in, surveying all his glorious works and thinking what a grand king he is. And the next day he's eating grass like a cow. God can change our circumstances. There is nothing too hard, nothing too impossible. So we shouldn't get too discouraged when we struggle and we shouldn't get too confident in ourselves when things are going well. As Pastor Mike is fond of saying, we have what we have by the hand of God. We have what we don't have by the hand of God. Nothing is too big, too hard, 
too impossible for our God. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Will you pray with me? Father, we just, uh, we are humbled by this multiple depiction in story of your chesed, your steadfast love to us, whatever our circumstances, whatever stage of life we might be in. You are a faithful, loving, good God, and we give thanks to your name this morning. Your redeemed cry out to you, O Lord, and we thank you. Father, give us a great week. Send us forth with the blessings of your word and the knowledge of your truth, and let us be a light to our communities. The world so desperately needs to know you and to needs to have your light. May we be ambassadors of that light in your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Amen.